This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. A famous joke about Eton and other English public schools that circulates widely in Great Britain is that actually they're none of these things. They're not English, they teach Latin, they're private, not public, and they're not a school but a playing field for rugby. Well, you might say the same thing about education savings accounts in the United States. They are not for education, but for taking family trips to Europe. They are not savings because you spend the money and they are not your account, but dollars the government gives to you. Still, education savings accounts are wildly popular, just like Eden and other English public schools. Virtually unknown a few years ago, 11 states now have them and they're being considered in many other state legislatures. So today I am pleased to have with me an authority on education savings accounts, Robert Enlow. He is the president of EdChoice, a group that has been promoting these accounts along with, with other school choice programs, including school vouchers and tax credit programs for, for many years. Robert, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, Paul. I love that intro. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to comment on that silly joke, but I will ask you to begin the conversation. What is an education savings account? Uh, it's hard to say without being wonky, but I'll do my best. So an education savings account is public funds that the government decides to expend on your child that are put onto an online digital platform and wallet that parents can spend on multiple uses from tuition to curriculum from curriculum to therapies for your children, from therapies to books and, and other learning experiences, uh, including you can hire a tutor, you can hire get computers. You can basically do everything that a school does to, to educate your child. So it's we, we like to say it's it's a voucher is public public funds to go directly to a private school. ESAs are public funds where parents get to choose. But isn't it the fact that most parents will use their education savings account money to pay for tuition at a private school? Isn't that the way most of the money, in fact, is being spent today? So that is currently how most of the money being is being spent. When you look at Arizona's program, however, and we'll see changes over time, when the program first started in 2011, most of the families did use it for private school tuition. But over time, the number of families that are using it for tuition is coming down. So I, I believe, for example, uh, it was at 90% at the beginning times, and I'd have to check those numbers, but it was very high. Now it's like 78% of families are using it for tuition. As families get more engaged in their child's education, they learn to customize more and they, they learn to try and do different things. So uh, why has this become such a popular school choice innovation? We used to think school vouchers was the uh, hottest thing out there in the in terms of opening up uh, the private sector to low-income families. But now we find instead that people are talking mainly about tax credits or education savings accounts. Why are these the popular, politically popular uh, formulation? I love, I love that question. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, so I think it's twofold. One, obviously, the pandemic supercharged the idea of a parent being in charge of their education, right? We just know that parents are more in charge or more involved than they have been before about uh, educating their children. But secondly, and I think actually most importantly in some ways, if you look back to the school choice movement, the origins of the idea of Milton Friedman's idea was a school voucher, which is basically public money going to private schools. 
you really ultimately have to choose at that time, Paul, right? So you have to say it's a public school or a private school. It's a public school or a charter school or a charter school or a private school. It's all about picking one school against another school. It's pitting one against the other. What education savings account do very differently than all of those mechanisms is basically say, we don't care about the school type. Parents get to care about the school type and what they want to do. So it really did change the focus of how the funds are spent from schools to parents and parents to customization. And so I think the reason they're wildly popular is, and by the way, our, our latest poll shows that they're wildly popular among teachers as well, with 78% of all district school teachers liking the concept of ESAs as well. And we're finding a lot of teachers wanting to try ESAs. Uh, so what, what we think is, when you change the message from a being about a school choice to being about a parent choice, that is wildly popular and legislators uh, believe in supporting their constituents. Well, maybe people don't quite understand what education savings accounts are. Now, that's a little bit of the point of my joke is that they're pretty, it's a concept that's not readily understood. It's open to a wide variety of interpretations. So when you have so many teachers supporting education savings accounts, isn't that partly because they think they are something other than what they actually are? Uh, possibly, although when you know, when you see, uh, when you talk to teachers and you talk to families, and you talk to opponents about, if you say, do you support ESAs, you'll get one number. And then if you explain ESAs, you'll get a, a, a different number. That number tends to be higher, as you know, in your polling, Paul, right? When you explain it to them. Uh, let's be clear. No one knows what a voucher is or a charter school is or an ESA is. If you actually ask public in Indiana, like we just asked, What's a charter? Half of them will think, a lot of the families will think, hey, I'm going to a private school, even though they're going to a charter school. Part of our job in the future is to do a much better job of clarifying what these things are. And, you know, Paul, I keep thinking back to Milton Friedman's concept, right, uh, of a functioning marketplace. You need an empowered consumer. That's through vouchers or ESAs. But you also need a marketplace that's open and free from barriers and really good information. And we have been really poor on that second one. And so, yeah, a lot of people support ESAs and a lot of people don't know what they are. Those two things exist. Right. Well, I would say the second decade, we've seen an explosion of uh, states enacting alternatives to uh, going to your local district school. Uh, the, there's been tax credit programs and voucher programs and education savings account programs passed in. You know, 20 some, I don't know, you know the number better than I do uh, uh, in the last uh, few years. So uh, why has this explosion happened just now? Do we have to give the credit to uh, Secretary DeVos, Donald Trump's Secretary of Education? Uh, I think that is certainly part of the reason, but not a large part of the reason. So I, what I've been subscribing, Paul, is... Uh, what you're seeing in 2023 is the is the tip of the iceberg. Everyone is looking at this incredible iceberg of success. We see, we, you know, we've called 2011 the year of school choice, 2021 the year of educational choice, and 2023 the year of universal choice and ESAs. And what you're seeing is this wonderful tip that is there because of COVID. It's there because of DeVos. It's there because, and what you don't see, Paul, is the mountain underneath the tip of the iceberg under the water, which is the decades of work to educate the public, to educate policymakers, to get people on board for the idea of customer and parent choice. And so I think what it is, it's a it's a perfect storm of, of the, the COVID, which supercharged this idea of parent movement, a new mechanism, which took it from vouchers to parent choice, uh, and and parents getting 
really uh, open to trying new things. And if you look at the growth of the microschooling uh, community, for example, what's super interesting about that, Paul, is that it's both right and left. It's not one or the other. Um, and then you add uh, to all this uh, the fact that red states have been passing this at a at a higher rate. It's certainly something we knew when we went into West Virginia six years ago at EdChoice. We knew that if you build in time support, you'll you'll get much more support in states like West Virginia. And I think something like West Virginia actually proving that you can pass a universal choice program was a big deal. I mean, a state like West Virginia could pass it, Paul, then pretty much anyone can. Well, there is still a lot of opposition within the Republican Party, especially in rural areas. And that's what I think is important about your West Virginia example, because it's a pretty rural state. But there's lots of opposition among uh, rural Republicans around the country. For example, Texas is resisting the passage of an education savings account program, as if I'm reading the newspapers correctly. So uh, I ha has the movement hit a wall? Is there, a, you know, you the easy things have been done, the easy states have been won, but, but you're going to find it harder and harder to move forward from this point on. Uh, certainly most of the low-hanging fruit is gone, um, although I think ESAs and refundable tax credits have, have helped change that. Paul, I would say the following. Um, it is true that choice is happening right now in red states, at least private school choice or parent choice is happening most in red states. It is also true that private school choice and, and parent choice is being killed in red states more than in blue states. So let's take a look at that. Um, this year, Idaho, you couldn't get a much more red state, uh, killed its ESA program. Texas is hopefully not going to, but they, they're on their way to killing it. Georgia killed it. Uh, and and actually has a Democrat, Misha Miner, who's an amazing stalwart supporter that's coming out uh, for it, uh, but they still killed it. Um, other states uh, who were on the right also uh, stopped. And North Dakota's governor, for gosh sakes, actually uh, vetoed a choice bill. So there are lots of reasons for it. The rural issue is one of the reasons. Um, the lack of education of policymakers is another. The fact that the unions are the largest employer in rural areas. If you look at Texas, for example, I was a uh, marvel at Texas. Texas has 1,100 school districts. That's like 100 school districts per legislator or per senator. That's a lot of lobbying going on. And so you, you have a lot of rural folks. You have a lot of union control. And, and you have, you've you hit the low-hanging fruit definitely off the park. And I think going forward, you know, you're going to you're gonna see this movement shift to states where uh, – this is why it's so important. This idea that liberty is a red state issue or a blue state issue, but liberty is a human issue. Milton Friedman would never say liberty is a red state or a blue state. He would say it's a human issue. And we got to remember that. And so red states kill liberty just as much as blue states do. Well, that's interesting. Now, is, is 2023 sort of a better year than 2024? Because 2024 is an election year. Is, is that when politicians pull back and say, let's wait till next year? We have data, Paul, going all the way back to like 2008, where we track the number of bills that were passed, the number of new states, the number of expansions, and it literally leaves like clockwork. Non-election year before the election, really good. Election year, bad, right? It, it goes up and down like, like a ladder, right? Like, and so I expect 2024 to be a little bit more difficult. Uh, and, and 2023, for example, um, actually has seen fewer bills pass than 2021, right, total bills, significantly more bills in, uh, introduced. So, for example, there have been 104 bills in 40 states uh, for school choice, vouchers, tax credits, and ESAs. 
of those 87 are around uh, almost 87% of them are ESA bills. So I don't think you'll see the types of, of, of 2020 support in 2024 as you'll get in 2023. But but I do think we've had what's really amazing about now is the growth of the universal issue, right? So everyone's getting to choose Paul's a big deal. We have to implement this well. Mitch Daniels said to me after 2011's victory, he said, enjoy your cigar, Robert. Tomorrow, the hard work of implementing a really long, big bill starts. And we better get doing our job of implementing well. So let me ask you about this universal point, because I think that is one of the new developments in the choice movement. The choice movement sort of began by saying, we've got to help out poor people get to good schools. They need to have a voucher. They need to have a tax credit so that they can uh, have a scholarship that will allow them to go to a private school that will actually meet their needs instead of going to their neighborhood public school. So that's the, the whole emphasis was on equity. Let's make sure we meet the challenges that poor people face. Now the conversation is, let's give choice to everyone. So why is that happening? And is that a good thing? So Paul, I'm going to, I'm going to remind us all, and, and I'm going to, uh, and this is not in any uh, sense to push back. Milton Friedman in 1955 said, everyone should choose. And his concept was that everyone gets choice. And that's what the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice was founded on. And from 1996 onwards, we have been probably along with Cato and a few others, the only group saying universal choice is all that matters from the very beginning. The politics of choice in order to try and get footholds in the door, and in order to try and get some successes, and, and, and also some folks on the ideological left and the ideological right who were saying, yes, we should only help poor people, not all people. Um, those things are true. There are groups like ours who have been fighting for universal choice for 27 years. Why is it different now? Uh, or is it different? Well, I would argue ed choice is not different. We've been fighting for this battle for 27 years and supporting universal choice. What is different is finally a recognition that you cannot win if you're going to have only some people get choice. Milton Friedman used to say, a program only for the poor is a poor program. And I think people finally realize this concept. If you don't actually give everyone a choice, by the way, just like we do in our public schools, right? We limit it by housing price, but everyone can choose them. Um, and so I think that's the basic fairness of it. Second, that every child is different in their needs. A wealthy child may not be in a school district that doesn't work for them because, oh my gosh, their child's getting bullied or they have special needs. It doesn't work. They want something unique. Um, and, and yet we're willing to pay for them in a public school. But also the last thing I would say about that is, is I think we're to the point where and we, this is one of the reasons we went statewide in Indiana. You can't get legislators to support things if they don't have people in their districts who get benefits. And so the reality is, is you need to, to make sure that A, things are statewide and B, things are broad. Now, Indiana was the first state to actually make it really broad. So when we passed our program, 68% of the kids were eligible in the state the first time right? Now, 98% are eligible. And so we, we know that it's important to be statewide. It's important to be broad. And I think the difference is, is I think people are realizing that if you give a benefit to some and not to all, it's not going to be sustainable over time. But now it's possible that the people who have resources will take advantage of these education savings account, and they will be the ones who capture most of the dollar bills. So you mean much like our traditional public schools? 
right? That actually has <laughs> that actually has the wealthy can uh, ca capture the markets in suburbia and high 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 wealth housing areas. So that's exactly what happens now. It's totally unfair and totally unjust. And actually, what we would think at a functioning marketplace is when you allow parents, even wealthy parents, to choose the ESAs, you're going to create a significantly higher number of options and opportunities, which will ultimately benefit all families, particularly poor families. Well, but then there is the problem of abuse. I, I alluded to that in the opening discussion. I'm taking my grandchildren down the Danube uh, this summer, and we're, we're going to have a great time. It's going to be a very educational trip. Uh, we're going to see Prague and we're going to see Budapest and, and also Vienna. It's going to be, they're going to know so much that they don't know today that there's no reason at all why I shouldn't be able to use my education savings account money to pay for the trip. Uh, learning happens everywhere, including on the Danube, uh, going through the historical regions of Austria and, and Czechoslovakia. And that's a conversation we should have. Is the airfare worth paying for? Well, what about all the trips on the side? I could argue easily that every trip you take to a castle is an educational expense worthy of paying, right? Much like field trips for our public schools, right? Um, I mean, the reality is, is we have a lot of these programs already in place. Now, the, the guardrails of what we think are appropriate expenditures and not appropriate expenditures, I think that's up for legislators and, and, and well-meaning uh, advocates to, to fight out. But what I will say, Paul, we know very clearly from the data that government run programs, let's say like SNAP benefits, have like 30 or 40 percent fraud, while ESA programs like in, in, in Arizona have less than 2 percent fraud. So you got to pick out which government program you think is worse, the one that actually is totally controllable by an online digital platform that parents can use or the one that the government runs and is dramatically wasteful. So I know this varies by state, but what are the rules? What can you spend the money on and what can't you spend the money on? This is a great question. I think every state has differences. Arizona has probably a wider expenditure usage than, let's say, Iowa will. Iowa's program is basically for private school tuition with some other fees. Arkansas's program is going to be pretty wide open. New Hampshire's program, um, for example, you want to teach your child um, uh, kayaking right? Is a kayaking course an approved expense? I could argue that. Is a kayak an approved expense? Maybe not, right? And so these are the debates that people are having. One of the arguments that they had in Arizona, Paul, was like, oh, some parents were buying chicken coops, all right? And that's not an approved, that's not an allowable educational expense. Well, I don't know if you've been into our traditional public schools recently, but I don't think there's a classroom that doesn't have a terrarium, a fish tank, or some kind of chicken coop outside, um, in fact, I know of a charter school in Indianapolis that runs its own farm, right, and produces cheese for the local the local uh, uh, charcuterie place, right? So is that educational? These kids are learning amazing things, right, and probably skills that they would never learn otherwise. I, I think one of the challenges we have in thinking about what's an allowable expense and what's not is we really have to ultimately trust parents. Is it going to be perfect? Sure not. I know that the current system isn't perfect, uh, but I think we can if we can trust parents enough to know what's in their best interest of their children by putting some guardrails on, I think we're going to see an explosion of opportunity because learning can happen everywhere, Paul. That's the thing I've learned about this whole thing. Learning can happen anywhere. So where do you think you have the best education savings account program? You, you've been mentioning Arizona. Is Arizona your I, ideal model education savings account program? Uh, Arizona is a good, uh, very good model, although it has a lot of challenges. Here's what I'd say. West Virginia, uh, New Hampshire, Arizona 
are the three that are the highest operating right now. Florida is also. I think the challenge here is what do bureaucrats do once they get in charge? Um, I think there are significant problems in Arizona right now with how they're managing the program. And I think parents are beginning to push back. And if we lose parents, I mean, if we lose parents' support for these kind of concepts, I think that these programs are going to become really, really in jeopardy. It's not the, it's not supposedly the fraud that I worry about because I know that that can be limited. It's when you start losing the trust of parents because you're putting bureaucratic regulations on it. When you say to a parent, well, hold on, I know this is allowable expense, but I'm going to need you to do some extra, many um, extra work to prove that you're doing that. You know, you're basically creating a, a, a us versus them. And I, the other thing I would say is if it's true that Arizona's program is going to be a $900 million program next year, then you would think you would want managers in the place competent to be able to handle it. I'm not saying the ones are not competent now. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we have to take the implementation of these programs seriously. It is a huge risk. And so I think our Arizona, Arkansas will be good. New Hampshire is good. New Hampshire, in my opinion, is the best model of how they manage it well. It is a smaller program. Um, and then I think Florida and West Virginia have some challenges to the implementation, but they're both very wide open in terms of what they can use the programs for. So where do you find the, the least satisfactory ESA program? Where Ooh. would you like to say you would like Tennessee, to? Tennessee, Tennessee. I mean, places where they limit the expenditures, right? Again, I love Iowa's program, but Iowa's program is essentially an ESA with limited uses. I think it's a great program. Everyone can choose. 10,200 people chose in the first two days, right? That's amazing. Um, but they have to typically use it for private school tuition, which is fine. I just think we need to create a much more customized marketplace than that. I love my Iowa friends, but I want it to be used for more. Well, so um, how about, do you have to decide not to go to a public school in order to get an education savings account? Can, can I get an education savings account and still send my child to my local public school? You can in West Virginia, if they, and though they used to do it right. And I love that concept, right? This idea that you have to um, attend what my friends, some of my friends call it, you don't want to force the divorce, right? Uh, between public schools and parents. My feeling is that I think we should get to a point where parents can choose some public school courses, some private school choices, some curriculum choices, some personalized hybrid learning. I think they should have a customized marketplace. West Virginia, I think, has the opportunity for that. Um, and I think this goes along with what I consider the next reform phase, Paul, which is we have to figure out, um, get rid of seat time. We have to start moving to competency and mastery, not merely seat time and completion. And I think ESAs will start us on that road, I hope. Well, our college is going to recognize this kind of education. In the end, a lot of families want to make sure their child is eligible to go to the university. So uh, our university is going to buy into this sort of uh, seat time, get rid of seat time. They're, they're used to the old-fashioned way of you, you've accumulated so many course credits. And this hodgepodge that you're talking about, how's that ever going to persuade a college to say, yes, I'll take this kid? It's a great question, Paul. And you're in higher ed a lot more than I am. And, and I, I, those doggone Carnegie units, um, uh, as we call them, I would ask, I would say that I the growing acceptance of homeschooling, for example, right, in colleges is one proof that colleges can change the way they're doing it. I, I think the next 
it question for, for colleges is to look at portfolio assessments, portfolio reviews. How do you have portfolios of work built up versus they have an SAT or an ACT? I mean, there are a lot of universities that are saying they don't even look at SATs that much anymore. Right. And so at what point at what point does, uh, you know, a test based completion actually matter to a university? And I don't know Harvard's policies, but I guess there's a lot more to admissions at Harvard than merely course completion. Right. And test scores. Well, you know, you have to have a sport. Fair enough. <laughs> the playing fields come back into play here. Uh, once you think about the Ivy Leagues. Well, maybe not so much anymore with all the NIL. I mean, if you look at what's going on with the name, image, and likeness stuff, I, I mean, the universities are going to be, like, these kids are going to be making a lot of money. Uh, some of them are, yes. Yes, some uh, of them are. Well, let me ask you um, where you think we're we're going. Are, are we, are you, do you see in the next decade as a, a full-blown world of choice across all states? Every state will have its choice program? Well, we're at, at currently with 12, with 12 states if North Carolina passes. We're at 25% uh, of the country having universal choice. Um, I see us getting to, you know, maybe a third to half in the next 10 years of universal choice. And, and considering broad states like Indiana, and Ohio, uh, maybe even more. Um, so yeah, I see what's gonna happen is states like Illinois who don't pass their programs, who repeal their programs, you're gonna see them attracting Indiana, should be marketing right now in Illinois to those families who, those 9,000 families who got this, uh, who lost their child scholarship and say, come to Indiana, we have schools and opportunities for you. And I actually think states are gonna start using this uh, for for I would, if I were a state leader, for marketing purposes. I don't know if you've looked at Charlestown, West Virginia right now, and you go on the realtor.com, all you see is uh, ready to build, getting ready to build, ready to build in build process. There are housing being created like crazy. And part of, the, part of that's because educational opportunities is part of the, the equation. So a lot of people say the public schools are being left behind and all the problems of our educational system are going to become even worse because the people who've got the energy and the resourcefulness are going to take care, take advantage of these options. And we're going to have a um, an ever more depressed public school system. How do you respond to that? First of all, I do want to take the plight of traditional schools seriously. Right? They, they do educate a lot of kids and it's important. However... To say that that public schools are are going to get worse um, makes my blood boil a little bit because I'm not sure how much poorer they can get when it comes to outcomes right now. And so um, at what point are we as a society going to say, I don't care what school you are, but if you can get 30% of your kids to read on grade level, that's not acceptable to me. And your answer shouldn't be give me more money. Or your answer shouldn't be to put all of the social, social, cultural things on schools to solve, and you're, and we shouldn't be spending dramatic amounts of more money on non-teachers uh, versus teachers. I mean, our our research that Ben Scaffidi does, Paul, you know, shows that there are more non-teachers in education now than teachers. I mean, that seems to be backwards. And so, I think the public school system is going to have to to face some harsh truths, and that is. Can we keep operating with the model we have that's from the 18th and 19th centuries, 
or do we need to do something different? What I think and I hope will happen is that school boards begin to realize they have a lot more power than they thought. They literally tomorrow can make every school a choice school. They can make every family a voucher recipient. They can control all these things themselves because they have that kind of power in their in their public school boards. So I'm hoping that what we'll begin to see is a lot more innovation in traditional schools. And those that don't, I, I, look, reality is parents have the right to vote with their feet. They do it already by picking a house. Now we're just saying everyone can do it regardless of how wealthy you are. Well, thank you, uh, Robert, for discussing education savings accounts so thoroughly and so knowledgeably. Uh, I think I'm much better informed than I was uh, a half an hour ago. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Paul, I have always appreciate being on this with you. Thank you so much for having me. I have been speaking with Robert Enlow. He's the president and chief executive officer of EdChoice, a nonprofit organization that promotes research and policy on educational alternatives. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.